You're not going to believe this. He killed 16 Czechoslovakians. Guy was an interior decorator. This house looked like shit. All right, kids, here we go. Seminars October 15th through the 17th with a few spots left, then December 10th through the 12th, and then February 4th through the 6th, all of those, of course, in Wichita Falls. For camps coming up, we have a coaching development camp covering how to coach the squat on November 6th in Cincinnati at Starting Strength Cincinnati. Then we have a couple self-sufficient lifting camps on the list. That's covering the squat, the press, the deadlift, how to film yourself, and how to diagnose your own technique. One on November 13th, and then one on January 22nd, both those in Wichita Falls. Just added a squat camp to the list on the Mediterranean, no less. That'll be in Tel Aviv, Israel on November 20th. And then we have a squat and deadlift camp in Phoenix on November 6th at Weights and Plates. And finally, a three-lift camp covering the squat, the press, the deadlift in Baltimore at 5x3 on November 7th. Couple new starting strength gyms have started their pre-sale process. San Antonio, Texas is now taking pre-sales as well as Cincinnati. And the cool thing about Cincinnati is that if they get to 100 pre-sale signups within the month, Ray Gillenwater is committed to getting a tattoo of Harambe on his back to honor our fallen hero, blessed be his name. For more information on locations, head over to locations.startingstrengthgyms.com. And for more information or details on anything that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet, ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. It's Friday, that is correctly spelled F-R-I-D-E-E, and as a result of that, uh, you know, it most places tomorrow's Saturday, and uh, it's kind of a weekend, kind of a kickback thing, right? I mean, that's the way everybody approaches the weekend, pretty yeah. much. Everybody except us. Yeah. That's when we work. Weekend's the right. same as uh, any other day for uh, for us. Right. Well, we're uh, we're happy to have with us today our friend Andy Baker from Houston, Texas. He is the co-author of the Barbell Prescription: Tra- Strength Training for Life After Forty. Did I get that subtitle correct? That is correct. Well, good. Any thoughts to modifying that now that we're all over 40? <laughs> I'm not there uh, yet for another six months. Oh, damn. Yeah, me too. Well, uh, next month for me. But yeah. I don't want to be lumped well, into that shit. You know, I'm 65. Yeah, this book is for you. I It is. I need to read it, I guess. You should. <laughs> I guess I should read the damn thing. Huh? Oh, God, I keep hurting myself. You haven't read the book. That's why you I keep hurting myself, no yeah. doubt. Now, believe it or not, I've, I actually have read the book, and I think it's a valuable contribution to the literature if we can just get people to read the damn thing. You know, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's it's sold well. It's not just you know the best selling thing we've ever done, but a lot of people have read this book, and a lot of people have started training with barbells with this book as their guide and it's it's been very successful in uh 
in terms of teaching people what to do uh, when they most profoundly do not know. But uh, it's a well-written book, and uh, Andy has contributed a lot to the programming parts of the book, and we uh, are indebted to him for his uh, his uh, broad experience training this particular demographic. Uh, thanks for being with us today, man. Uh, sure, thanks. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, what do you see that is the most stark contrast in training uh, someone my age, for example, and an 18-year-old kid? Um, I would say exercise execution and exercise selection in that the most difficult thing generally most people like to think that the that the that the that the biggest gap say between somebody that's in their 60s or 70s and somebody that's in their 20s or 30s is is programming related um and then while there are differences for sure i don't think that's usually generally the biggest challenge at least not that i have with the clients that i work with in person at the gym the biggest challenge generally is getting them into the movements you know according to our model which almost i would say as often as you get them to do all of the movements according to a model i'd say just as frequently if not more often the movements themselves have to be modified in a way that these that these demographics can actually do them and train them and progress with them in a way that's both safe and effective so that would be you know and you know a lot of people can a lot of people you can get them right into the um you know right into the main lifts and a lot of people a lot of people can't and you've got to figure out you got to kind of sometimes be creative in in the ways that you modify these lifts in order to be able to get them to do them right uh, you know and, and and a lot of that is controlled by injury history 100 percent. you know you've got uh people my age have had, i mean how often do you see a guy that's 70 that comes into the gym that can do a a strict overhead press with you know with a very clean range of motion you just don't it's almost never. You know, you just don't. Shoulders get beat up more than anything else. And, uh, oh, you know, it's just a, a matter of uh, – some of it is a matter of working around actual movement problems that this particular demographic has got. And, and some of it is just giving them the confidence to understand that they can execute the movement pattern correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, the, I mean, either way, the net effect is they can't do the movement. Right. You know, for whatever whatever the reason. They don't think they can or they legitimately can't. But um, one, of the, one of the challenges of training an older demographic is uh, showing the guy that he can, in fact, squat below parallel. When it is, that's the furthest thing from his mind. He never thought that he could ever do such a thing. And he's never done it before, but he can. And uh, it is a uh, training an older demographic is uh, a far greater challenge in terms of dealing with the psychology of the they've training got a lot under of, the bar. They've know. got a lot of built up head trash. Yeah, and they're they do. a lot. They've got decades of preconceived notions of what they can and can't do or what they should do exactly you know and what you know what's the, you know they're all convinced when they come in you know it's always funny because when new people come in 
that are older, you know, and they know that they're going to be squatting and that sort of thing. They, the, the number one body part that they're always scared of is knees, right? Mm-hmm. They're always scared of their knees are going to hurt or they're going to hurt their knees or they can't do it because they had a knee injury. And I, I mean, that's one of the least problematic joints <laughs> that I deal with in my gym day to day is people with knee pain or knee problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have, I'd say shoulders, backs, those sorts of things are generally more problematic in trying to kind of work around and program around than the, the knee, the, you know, the knee issues. And that's just, that's just one little example, but they've got a lot of built up stuff in their head of what they can and can't do. And, uh, you know, once, once you get them in and build their trust up though, you know, it's, it's fun to watch them make that shift, you know, make that not just the physical shift, but that kind of mental, psychological, emotional shift. Well, not only people in that demographic, but pretty much everybody that wanders into the gym that wants to, wants to start training with weights has a complete misunderstanding of what the knees actually do. Right. They, uh, the knees are part of a much longer kinetic chain and the squat is not a knee exercise. The squat is a hips exercise and it is, uh, it's, it's something you have to teach these people because they, everybody in the world is carrying around this misconception in their head about what the squat is supposed to look like. They all have a picture in their mind of knees forward, the back vertical, and all of the load being on the joint in the middle of the leg. And it's the squat is a hips exercise. So you have to take some time to show them that because they're, they're, the picture in their mind uh, of the squat will affect the way they attempt to balance the movement when they squat down and stand back up. All of this has to be, has to be deprogrammed and then reprogrammed. You have to uninstall and then install the programming. And if you, you know, if you, you, those of us that handle older people all the time get pretty good at, at, uh, at convincing them to just look, just whatever you got that picture in your mind is wrong. Now, just do what I tell you to do for the next five minutes. Just do exactly what I tell you to do, and then the light goes on. Mm-hmm. And you have to develop uh, a rather big toolkit. You know, there's all kind of tricks that we use to get people to squat correctly. Um, but the, the biggest problem they have with this is the preconceived notion that the squat is, they have a picture of a front squat in their head. If they have a picture at all, if they have a picture at all, a lot of the people that I deal with that come into me are, are so rank novices that, you know, they're have, they never even thought about squatting down and standing back up, but they've been told by whoever that squatting is bad for your knees. They've somehow managed that, that information has managed to get (laughs) into their head. So they, they come in convinced that, you know, the knees are fixing to fixing to hurt. Right. You know, but then when they don't, that's a a big step towards, you know, them gaining your trust. And, you know, I think for me, you know, when I started doing this, um, you know, what, 15, 20 years ago, I guess, working with this population, it was much harder, um, you know, when you're in, you know, for young coaches that are in your early 20s, you know, let's say early to mid 20s, it's very difficult to gain the trust of somebody that's 60 or 65, you know, because they are not right. convinced you have any understanding whatsoever. You are a snotty-nosed little kid as far as they're concerned. Right. They've got kids older than you. Um, you know, the old, the older you get, though, the, the little bit easier 
it is to earn their trust. And the better you get at explaining things in a way that kind of relaxes them and puts them at ease and makes them more coachable. Right. Yes, you, you, your perception of uh, the way you should explain things to people changes as you develop as a coach. Exactly. And uh, you just get better and better at it. Better and better at saying exactly the right thing at exactly the right time to get the job done under the bar for the person you're training. And I don't think people really uh, have an idea of just how, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not technical, how nuanced your instructions to a, to a, a person you're trying to teach the squat have to be. You got to say exactly the right thing at the right time. And the you have to have some sort of built in, um, some sort of built in intuitive ability. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that everybody has that necessarily. I do think it can improve over time because I've, I watch myself improve over time, but you know, not everybody's great, great at it. Um, no, it's a, know. it's a communication skill that not everybody possesses. Absolutely. You can't just read a script. Right. You know, you, you can't do that. There are, there are, uh, outfits operating out there that, that want to try to reduce, uh, this type of, um, this type of activity to just a rote script that you can read or a recording that you can play to get people to do that's, that's, that doesn't work. It will no. never work. It is pointless to try to develop that because your interaction with the person you're trying to coach is extremely dependent on that person's level of experience. Mm -hmm. That person's level of experience guides the way in which they receive your instruction. And you have to adjust your instructions to meet the uh, ability of the of the of the trainee to understand you and you that that uh, level of understanding changes as the process continues the, if you've been with somebody trying to teach them how to squat for five minutes on the platform five minutes later they understand far more about this than they did when you first started so the whole thing has to evolve and you have to have the Oh, you know, the, the, the nuanced understanding of how your, your instructions are being received in, in order to continually adjust. Them. Yeah. You can, I mean, you can just by watching people as you're talking to them, you know, good, good sales guys are good at this. You yes, know, they are they're, they're you know, and that's another, it's, I mean, coaching in a way is, is, is similar in that you, you can teach somebody to sell, but some guys are just great at it. I mean, mm -hmm. they can sell an ice cube to an Eskimo. They've got a, a kind of a natural ability to do that. And, you know, some guys never get good at it. Coaching's the same way in that sometimes when you're standing there, you know, talking to somebody on the platform, you've got to be able to read their face and read their body language and, and see is what I'm saying penetrating to this person. Right. Or you get that, you get that blank look from them that says the way that I'm under, the way that I'm explaining this is clearly not getting through to this person. Right. So I need to change my approach or that, you know, th this person is a little bit distracted by, you know, whether they're nervous or intimidated or whatever. And, you know, you interject, you know, there's times where you might interject a, a joke or a little bit of humor just to kind of, just you know, calm the them down a little bit or, 
you know, and so, some people need to be, you know, maybe need to hear it said a little bit more forcefully, <laughs> you know, it just, yeah. it, but those, those approaches work differently at different times, like you said, for different people. So, right. You, know, you, you, you can, that up you over can time. yell at a 14 year old kid, right? Because they're used to being yelled at. Right. A 55 year old businessman is, is probably not used to being yelled at. Right. And if you cannot adjust your approach to to the conditions on the ground on the platform based on who it is you're coaching and what you learn about that person as the session develops. This is a much more nuanced thing than people, than people understand. You cannot coach from a script. Mm -mm. You can't do it. You can't read. Coaching will never be reduced to a script. It can't be. Because you have to match your instructions to the trainee with the way those instructions are being received right now. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do that, then you can't coach. This is, a, this is one of the more complicated communications tasks in, in human endeavor. Because you're not just communicating ideas. You're communicating ideas that must result in correct movement of the body. And you can't just say squat down. Right. That's not adequate. Squat down can look a hundred different ways. You know, squat down and stand back up. You know, it's, it's, it's far more uh, detailed than that. And you have to have the ability to communicate complex movement patterns and the corrections to those as you see them being executed. And not everybody can do this. Not everybody can do this. This is a this is not a job for people who cannot communicate. This is a a profoundly nuanced communication skill, and some people can do it, and some people can't do it, and that's all there is to yeah, it. Yeah, and and that's true. And, and the only way to really get good at it is to do it over and over and over and yes. over again. And that's you know that's why you know we always say at the at the seminars that you you just can't turn somebody into a coach at the seminar that they've you you've got to come you know you've got to come with a little bit of that skill set already developed and well with, you know, with most not, of it already developed right i mean we're not uh you know all of the other certifying agencies certifying bodies certifying organizations that certify coaches uh, are more than happy to certify you if you pay them the money we are more than happy to fail you and we fail far more than we pass uh, because this has to be done correctly and we're the only organization that certifies coaches that um, passes a tiny minority of the people that apply for the credential because the standard is high and it has to be kept that way and uh not everybody can learn to do this. Right. You know, I mean, you're not doing them any favors by telling them that they can. No, you know, no, they need to go do something them. else if they can't. Right. You know, exactly. you're, you're not, you know, telling somebody that, yeah, you're a, you're a certified coach when they're just an idiot is, is not, you know, that doesn't do anybody any favors. It certainly doesn't do their clients any favors. Mm -mm. And, uh, you know, when we, when we, certify somebody as a starting strength coach um we are uh, 
we are thinking about the clients that these people uh, will then make a living coaching. If we don't think that uh, this guy standing in front of you on the platform, doesn't matter what he looks like, doesn't matter if he's physically impressive, doesn't matter if he can do the movements perfectly correctly himself, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is his ability to communicate this material to the client. If he can do it, he can coach. And his ability to communicate the material to the client is not merely dependent on having experience and knowledge. It's not merely dependent on his having himself gone through the process and learned from going through the process uh, enough about the process to communicate it. It is a this is a this is a communication skill that not everybody possesses, and not everybody can coach the best lifters in the world. See, this is the problem that. USA weightlifting continues to make. They want to hire the best lifters in the world for coaches. And that's almost always a really stupid idea. Yeah, I mean, you, you see that across all sports. Yes, you do, don't you? You know, most, I, most you know football seems to have, uh, have uh, figured this out a long time ago. I mean, it was Tom Landry – a really, really good football player. I don't. I, I don't. Maybe I don't know. No, he, he was played. not. Yeah. No, he was not. No, he was not. Was Vince Lombardi a a high end football player? No, no. I mean, football grasped this a long time ago. Coaching is a separate skill. Coaching requires experience in performing the thing that you're trying to coach, but it does not. Absolutely, does not require high-level performance in that skill. It's a separate skill entirely. And USA Weightlifting has always made the mistake of hiring world championship lifters for coaching. And that's not what coaching is. Coaching is not performance. Coaching is not based on performance. Coaching is based on your ability to communicate the things that the performer needs to know in order to excel in the performance. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the coach has to be a high-level athlete. Right. Because most high-level athletes are not very good communicators. Now, there are, of course, exceptions to all of these rules. But as a general rule, uh, the harder an athlete has to work to learn the sport to learn the skill because of a lack of genetic endowment, then the better the chances are that that individual is going to be a better coach because he's learned a bunch of stuff that other people just know with their bodies. Right. And I think that's, it's even more true when you're working with novices. Oh yeah. Which, you know, at the pro football level, they're not working with novices, but it's still true there. But it's even more true in what we do in that, yeah. you know, the vast majority of our clients are novices, you know, and that's exceptional lifters true. don't pay us to coach them. Right. You know, of the, I, I'd say 95 percent of everybody in our position coaches largely talentless members of the general public. And you have to be able to tell these people what they need to know 
to successfully execute the movement patterns under the bar. You know, now freak athletes don't need that level of of uh, babysitting. But the people that form the bulk of our of our clientele do. They need to be told what to do with their needs because they don't already know. They need I heard to- an interesting thing the other day. I forgot who it was that said it. It was not didn't have anything to do with sports or coaching, you know, uh, lifters or anything, but it was something in regards to that one of the problems with experts is that, you know, and if we regard ourselves, I guess, as experts or at least people that have been doing it a long time, is that when, and especially if you only deal with others in your peer group. So if you're a, let's say a high level coach and you're used to only interacting with other, with other experts or other high level coaches, it is so easy to forget what the novice or what the lay person doesn't know. It's right. very, very easy to forget all of the little things that they don't know. And that's a, why it's so, it's so important to retain. Because right. um, you've known it for so long that you have forgotten right. that people don't know this. And you're not discussing those things with your peers because they're, they're not by and large very interesting. You know, right. we would rather with our peer group, we would maybe rather debate the intricacies of, you know, advanced level programming because that's maybe perhaps more stimulative or interesting than it is coaching the novice how to squat for the eight millionth time right you know and so it's very easy but that's why i I feel like it's it's very important to retain um a practice of coaching clients all the time where you routinely deal with incoming novices and not give that part up you know no matter how long you've been doing it. it it's it's interesting when you think about it who has the luxury of only dealing with talented athletes? Who has that luxury? Certainly not us. Right. You know, certainly not us. If you're at an institution of some sort and, uh, and have a, uh, you know, 55 kids in the locker room that have been recruited by a talented recruiter who can spot physical athletic talent. Uh, you're not dealing with the general public, and you're certainly as hell not dealing with what we deal with out here in the world of of commercial strength and conditioning. If you go into if you go into private practice, if you want to be self-employed, and you go into private practice as a coach or a gym owner or whatever, ninety percent of the people that you deal with on a day-to-day basis are going to be regular people. They're going to be novices. They're just going to be regular just, folks. Because that's the math. That's the math. That's the exactly. math. That's, it's, there's not enough of everyone else, you know, to, to pay the bills. Right. You take a D1 strength coach who all he has in his locker room are, are athletic freaks. A guy like that very, very seldom actually knows what the hell he's doing. Now, that I say that on this podcast with you, and you and I both know what I'm talking about, but if – those of you that are listening to this for the first time may not have the slightest idea what I what I mean when I say that. If you deal with nothing but freak athletes, movement specialists, movement geniuses, people who were born with the knowledge of how to move effectively, people with big standing vertical jumps, people that are fast and quick and reactive and, and have a tuned up central nervous system athletes right 
the the practice of strength and conditioning in a uh, in a public setting uh, like Andy and I deal with does not deal with those people at all. Maybe accidentally you run across across one once a year. Yeah, I've had but, I've had a few, but they're I've, they're, had, a, I've had a few. Sure, we've all had a few, but they're not the bulk of our business. No, they're not, and they never will be. And no. so we have to learn how to coach people of average physical ability, average physical ability, and people that only deal with freak athletes never have to know that. They never have to know. You're dealing with people with a 36-inch vertical jump. These people are already strong. They were born strong. And it doesn't matter too much whether your strength program works or not, as evidenced by the shitty strength programs at almost every single institution dealing with competitive sports. Uh, there, there's so much undeveloped potential at the not, D1 and that, professional ranks. It's just astonishing to me. You know, I've, I've ranted and raved about this kid that I trained for a number of years. That was, he, went, he was one of the top shot and discus throwers in the state of Texas all through high school. You know, and he got a full-ride scholarship to the University of Oklahoma. And, you know, if you poll the general public, most people would think that the strength and conditioning staff at the University of Oklahoma, which is historically one of the top athletic programs in all sports in the entire country, would have top of the line, top tier right. strength and conditioning programs. And people don't and understand. Not not only it's not never only did the he case. Not, not only did he not get stronger from age eighteen to say twenty two while he was there, but they ruined him. They absolutely yeah. ruined him. They injured him. That he didn't get stronger. He got weaker. They taught him bad movement patterns. And you know, as a result, he got worse from his from his freshman year through his senior year. That's you know, typical. and this is a kid with great genetics that they they ruined because he didn't have the he didn't have you know these these are people that are doing you know high volume sets of eight reps on you know very heavy push presses <laughs> and you know paused you know I, I always I always say this kid he came back for his first summer with his strength you know his printed off you know strength program that his coaches wanted him to do over the summer and not one movement in that program there was not one back squat. There was not one bench press. There was not one overhead press, not one power clean. There was none of that. It was a bunch. It was a bunch of just weird shit yeah. in there. None of, none of which contributed to making him strong, but all of which was fashionable. Right. Yes. Yes. Fashion plays a, a role in this at the D one and, and, uh, professional levels. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's absolutely amazing how, steadfast these people have been at ignoring the basics you know i mean does a does a man with a 315 squat have the ability to hit you as hard as a man with a 585 squat well no yeah i mean no so why don't you concentrate on getting his squat to 585 you know why they don't because they're stupid because they are unable to see through the superficial executions of these movements down into the foundation of strength that makes that execution possible. Now, I don't know why that is. I don't know why that virtually every NFL team, every professional sports team, 
every Division I college program in the country, with very, very few exceptions, is, uh, is obsessed with performing movement patterns that make the athlete look athletic instead of performing movement patterns that can be loaded five pounds heavier every time they come in the weight room. I I don't understand this disconnect because to me it's perfectly logical, perfectly obvious what what needs to happen. But they're not doing it. I don't know where it comes from. And I don't, you know, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know where it necessarily starts. I do know that from the collegiate level down to the high school level, it filters down into the high school level. Oh, you yeah. know, because these, you know, high these school coaches, coaches all want to be high end, you know. Right, and, and they, they go to these, you know, they they go to these clinics, and they're they're <laughs> they're taught, you know, things by the by the college strength and conditioning staffs under the assumption that they have some insight that, you know, beyond you know, beyond what they have and it filters down and now they're, they're taking these things that aren't, aren't even useful for the genetic elite and are applying them to a bunch of scrawny, less athletic 15 and 16 year old kids. Right. And, you know, the result is, is not good in most cases. That, 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 that's not true at every single high school, you know, but it does. It's, this, it's, a lot it's of this not true at every single out. high school, but it's damn sure true at most of them. And that's true. It's true at most of them. Now, you you occasionally will find somebody with his head out of his ass at the high school level. But most of the time, they're just so happy to have a job. Yeah. You know, coaching. They get to be the coach that they looked up to when they were in high school sports themselves. And uh, they just go along with whatever, whatever the – you know the 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 guys above them want to do without any thought to any analysis or anything like that. And if you if you look at sports coaching across the country, now I'm not going to address anything outside the country because I've got no experience with it. But I would imagine it's worse than what we're doing over here. Uh, you you've got a whole bunch of people that have given absolute absolutely no analytical thought to trying to solve the problem of what makes the athlete better. What makes an athlete who's good enough to play these movement patterns on the field already, what makes him better at doing that? You know, and the, and the, the answer is force production. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is not, to us, a terribly complicated conclusion to draw, but none of them seem to – they all seem to be content with – with practicing with light weights, the movement patterns they're supposed to execute on the field when that doesn't improve the ability to produce force on the field in that movement pattern. Force production. And and as an extension, I'd say, you know, force production overlapped with, you know, potentially the, you know, the addition of muscle mass, which are, you know, both more or less related Mm -hmm. that that's, that's the only thing outside of the very, very specific domain of practicing and playing the sport that's improvable. That's yeah. really the only that's the only yeah. metric that we have control over. And right. to the extent which that helps the athlete, you know, that's more or less left up to his genetics and the level of very sport specific coaching that he's getting in his sport. But that's the only thing that can really be improved upon outside of the very specific field of play. Right. 
you know, and right. which is why we've distilled it down. All of us have been saying for years, we've kind of distilled it down to what is the formula for training athletes, which is get strong and then practice and play your sport. Right. The two factor model of sports that, performance. The ex- That's not- just all there is to it. You know, getting strong and then practicing. Get strong and practice. And don't make practice look like strength training. And don't make, for God's sakes, don't make strength training look like practice. Yeah. You know, that's the most common mistake that's made uh, in weight rooms all across the country in terms of organized, you know, institutionalized sports. You- and not understanding the the other big mistake is taking a group of, of underweight, weak kids, let's just say football, in January – and having them condition like the playoffs start tomorrow, mm-hmm. not understanding how conditioning factors into that. And that conditioning is a transient adaptation that can be developed fairly quickly. And that these kids spend as much time often doing conditioning work, you know, six or eight months before the season starts as they do building strength and putting on muscle mass. That's just know? a and fundamental that- misunderstanding of human physiology. And it is almost yes. universal. Yes. It is just almost universal. You can get a kid in shape in two weeks. And two-a-days have proven that for how long? What yeah. else do you need to know besides two-a-days? Right. You know, you, 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 you guys invented two-a-days. Do you not, can you not learn from your own success that it only takes two weeks to get a kid in shape? But you can't make him strong in two weeks. It can't be done. The process is completely different. Obtaining conditioning and obtaining strength are two separate physiological processes. And these people cannot seem to separate this in their minds. And trying to maintain and hold peak conditioning year-round is going to interfere with the ability to build strength and put on muscle, which is the fundamental thing that these kids at this stage need need to be doing. Absolutely it does. And they don't understand that strength is an extremely persistent adaptation and conditioning is an extremely transient adaptation. And you have to treat them separately. You have to prioritize them when it's time to do so. But you can't condition year-round because it interferes with the acquisition of strength. And it's not necessary. That's it. And, you know, and you can you can make an argument for perhaps not letting kids get completely deconditioned, you know, and, and a, a once a week of some wind sprints or whatever you want to do with them, depending on the sport, is, is enough to maintain a, a baseline right. so that they're not completely deconditioned, which won't necessarily completely fuck up the process of getting them strong and helping them. You know, most of these kids at the high schools that I go, the, I mean, all you got to do is look at them. The, 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 the chief, the, uh, you know, the, the primary uh, area of weakness is the, is the fact that they're, they're, they're just small, they're weak and they're, they, you know, they don't have a lot of muscle mass. And if you want to put, you know, a playoff team on the field, get, get all these kids 10, 20 pounds heavier, you know, or more, mm-hmm. you know, and you'll have a, win- a winning team, but they don't do it. Well, they don't know you how. Know? Right. They, they they don't know well they don't know a couple of things they don't understand why it's better for a kid to squat 495 than 315 you know they don't understand that well I, I know 
coach that he doesn't hit the offensive lineman with a 495 squat. But if all of he all he has is a 315 squat or a 275 squat, he can't hit the guy as hard as he can if he, if he does have a 495 squat. Right? He's not hitting him with 495. He's hitting him with a higher percentage of his squat than 315 or 275. And then he doesn't understand that uh, you've got to uh, take time to build that level of strength. Now, it doesn't take as much time as everybody thinks. Uh, if you go up five pounds of workout three days a week, you know, that's 65 pounds a month worth of squat. You know, you do that for three months, the kid is stronger. Mm-hmm. But you want him to do little cone drills and shit, Right. You want him to play little games on the, on the on the, on the football field and stuff, and it's when you know this kind of strength is built in the weight room. If you have the good fortune to be able to recruit fifty-five genetic freaks into your locker room, you have the the ability to ignore what we're talking about right here. You know, if you can find people. Who are born strong and they're out there yeah. they're certainly out there that you don't have to learn how to make them stronger even though you still could and this is what most most coaches do they just rely on their recruiter because they have no idea how to how to make these kids stronger and the the funny thing about that andrew is that it's not real complicated, is it? Well, yeah, and also... You just go you know, up five pounds on your three sets of five than what you did last time, and you keep doing that until that's not possible anymore. And that's all there lot, is to it. And a lot of times, the, the ineffectiveness of the programming is masked by the fact of where they're where they're getting these kids at in their, yeah. in their stage of development. You're recruiting them at, say, age 17 or 18, and by 21 or 22, when they leave the program, you go, oh, well, look how much stronger this kid got. But yeah, most well, people get stronger from age 18 to 21, even if they don't lift. Right. You know, <laughs> so he would have he done, done the same thing working at Dairy Queen. Right. Just because you of a factor of their of their age. You know, three uh, years of, of growth from 18 to 21 makes everybody on the planet stronger. Right. You know, if that's your strength program. Right. <laughs> okay, fine. At, at, that's what most of their strength programs are based on. Take care of I take care of the people that are in front of me. That's all I. That's, that's all, all I you can concern yourself with. You know, it's all you can concern yourself with. Uh, you know, every once in a while, uh, a guy in 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 a practice like yours or mine will have somebody walk in the door that is a it's got a thirty eight inch vertical. You know. A athlete, a genetic freak, and then we get the opportunity to show everybody what we know and how well it works. But normally, that's not the case. Mm-mm. It's not the case because kids that are at that level of athletic performance are usually involved in team sports, and their coaches tell them not 
to go to Ripito's gym, not to go to Baker's gym. We will take care of all of your strength and conditioning needs right here at our school. And you do what we tell you to do or you're off the team. Well, and, and the, it's the frustrating the, as hell, isn't it? But it's the logistical challenge here is that, you know, just when I first started doing this the, in the state of Texas, at least, you know, when I first started, the, the, the coaches were not allowed during the summertime, the coaches really weren't allowed to do much with these kids. So you got a chance to work with them, you know, for several months. But now, you know, the stuff at the schools, it's changed. The rules have changed and the, the kids are involved in you know, the strength and conditioning program more or less year round at the school. And there really isn't anything you can do with them because of the interference effect from, yes. you know, you can't run them on it. If they're doing a bunch of bullshit stuff at the school, you can't do anything with them in your practice or they're never oh, at a point where they're recovered enough to run anything that looks like a linear progression. So the, the coaches you know, I, have it fixed up so that if you interfere with your their athletes, you will be overtraining their athletes. And then guess who they get to blame? Yeah. You. It's, it's better to just not take them unless it you really can work is. with them, you know, under your own own rules, which is, you know, I've done most of my work now in the, you know, in the last couple of years or, the you know, really the last decade or more with sports like swimming, which, you know, which I really have, you know, if you've ever seen me, I'm the I'm the least likely swim coach that you'd ever see. But, you know, those, <laughs> those kids don't have any sort of any sort of strength program at all. Right. Um, and so they've had a lot of success. And so that at my gym, that's just, that's just been, you know, it's just built on word of mouth and that, you know, a swimmer comes in, they start working with me. All of a sudden they're getting faster. The other parents are saying, Hey, what's your son doing? What's your daughter doing? Oh, they go see this guy over here. And all of a sudden I've got a, a gym full of swimmers, you know, but I can train them on inter I mean, other than the swimming, but they don't have a, they don't have a strength program, you know, interfering, you know, with, with what I do. So I'm able to do what I want with them, which is the basic lifts. It's not mm -hmm. anything that looks like, no. you know, sport, sport specific. We, we squat, we press, we do a lot of chins and weighted chins. And that's where that's about as sport specific as I get is I, I may prioritize chins more than I would with a, with a different type of athlete. But other than that, it looks a lot like a strength program for literally anybody else that would walk in my door. It's a simple novice progression and right. lo and behold, they get a lot faster in the pool you know yeah yeah they do and uh and guess who never gets the credit for that andy well <laughs> i don't really care you know as long as they keep referring customers right. to me i don't really give a shit right. if i get you know whatever credit well, I, I understand it, it, it there reaches a point at which you just you know you're not working with the coaching staff you're working with the kids yeah. you can't work with the coaching staff it's, and they the kids know the kids can feel it you know they, they can do. feel it you of know, course the parents, the parents, the parents are the ones that you're, that you're really, you know, they're the ones that are, that are writing the checks for the kids. So they're, you know, they're the ones that see it, you know, they're not going to keep cutting you the check if the, if the, if the kids aren't improving drastically and uh, you know, even, even not just with performance, but with injuries, you know, these kids come in, they're short, they're 15, 16 years old, their shoulders are all torn up because they're, you know, they're doing just thousands and thousands of, you know, re repetitive motions in the water every day, right. multiple times a day. And all of a sudden you get them to, I'll have them pressed three days a week for, you know, the first two to three weeks that I have them. And then what do you know? Their shoulders don't hurt anymore, you know? And some yeah. of these parents have spent a fortune on physical therapy and everything else trying to get these kids out of pain. And all they needed to do was get, was get, get strong. stronger. Right. Sure. You sure. know? And, uh, you know, it's, it's really amazing how, uh, 
how transparent that is to us and how opaque it is to most everybody else. Yeah. It, it really is amazing the difference in perceptions uh, between me and you and uh, the people we work with and virtually everybody else who doesn't understand that stronger is always better. But that stronger is not complicated. Right. Stronger is five more pounds. That's all there is to stronger is five more pounds. Now, when that quits working, then we'll worry about getting complicated. But right now, yeah. it's just five more pounds. That's all you have to do is a basic movement that involves a huge amount of muscle mass and lift five pounds heavier a weight than you did last time on it. And that's all there is to it. This is not complicated. But everybody in strength and conditioning at the institutional level seems to make it complicated. And uh, well, sometimes, you know, that wasn't and always the case, you know. There was a, and it's not even just complicated. Sometimes it's just wrong. It's just wrong, and I don't understand. You know, there's still – the perception is still, you know, in our industry, you know, amongst some guys that are – well, you know, very well respected coaches that work with, you know, high level athletes and that sort of thing. And I mean, I still see it. I've been seeing it for 10 or 20 years of, you know, this, this notion that overhead athletes, you know, that's what they call them. Swimmers, baseball players, whatever. Overhead athletes should never go overhead in the gym. Yeah, I don't know where that came that's from. That's a brilliant piece of analysis, isn't it? I don't know where that came from because it's literally 180 degrees wrong you know yeah. and i'm willing to accept that different people have different experiences and that sort of thing but it's just it's so fundamentally wrong from you know what what i have seen in terms of just the, well, it's, it's the one thing that these kids need to do to strengthen their shoulders and get and get out of pain and everything that they would read from the quote the you know the experts is telling them not not to do the one thing you know, they're telling them you got to do face pulls and, and rear delts and all that. And it's all these little you know. bullshit exercises that can't be loaded effectively in a progressive manner. But you it's it just it, it. It's so odd that someone would miss the logic of this. You know, if you take somebody's press overhead from 100 pounds to 150 pounds, what happened to their shoulders? I, yeah, I mean, how is this complicated? You know, if you if you get them from 150 to 200 pounds, what happened to their shoulders? I mean, how much did, harder did is that worse? shoulder having when they're weak? How much harder is that shoulder having to work to drag that kid's 160 pound body through the water? You know, 10,000 times a week. You know, versus if it was if it was 50 pounds stronger. Yes. Yeah, How much just, less work is that? Is that putting on that joint week in and week out? Yeah, this is duh level stuff, you know. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. the The coaching staff usually won't work with you, you know. Yeah, no. Like, it's I mean, and the coaches see it. They they've got a kid in there that's been that's got some talent, but that hasn't been able to live up to their potential or ability because they're shoulders are injured you know all the time and and all of a sudden they're not and they're performing well and they don't seem to ever care to ask what happened it just right fixed itself what did you, you know? do to get better right young man what did you do to get better well i went to went to coach baker and got my my press my overhead press up from 100 pounds to 150 pounds 
And usually they'll, the response will be, well, you shouldn't be doing overhead presses. <laughs> well, they'll tear your shoulders up. When you, but, but coach, you just asked me what I'd done. <laughs> what was different you know, the what? last week that wasn't there the last year, oh, you know? God. It's just amazing. Absolutely so, amazing. Like I said, I don't really worry about it. I got I got out of the I got out of the convincing business a long time ago. Yeah, I mean it, it gets the frustrating. I used to think that I was in the convincing business when I first got into this. That, long, that long years a, ago. That is a good way to go broke. I made the mistake of going to schools, trying to talk to the coaches. I did too. Over there. And I think we all we've all done that because we're all trying to carry the message, right? We're all trying to carry the message, and they don't want to hear the message, Mm-mm. and they're not going to listen to you, and it's a complete waste of time. But you got to go do some, you got to go do some of that so you'll know. Right. Yeah. Young strength coaches have just got to go do some of this so they'll so they can figure out what the problem is, because they, you know. I mean, I've offered to do it for free at the high schools around here. I've I've talked to the head coaches at the high schools, and I'll say, you know, look, I know you can't bring in outside trainers or whatever to their coaches you got to use the people that are employed by the school district and all that i understand all that but i've offered you know for free send send your coaches over to me on a saturday and let me teach your coaches how to coach this stuff let me teach your coaches how to get these kids into a good squat position let me teach these coaches how to how to get these kids to doing a bench press right or a power clean or whatever you're trying to do let me let me show your coaches you know and you know you're not going to get them perfect in a weekend, but you could show them a lot. No, you could. You know, you, you might could, you might get them 25, you could 50% turn the program better. around in a weekend if you just, they, if they you implemented 25 percent of what you taught them. You know, yeah. you you could turn the program around in a weekend, and yeah. they all they just there's something about a high school coach, and it's not true all of them, but it's true 95 percent of them. They're creatures. Are they are slaves to their own egos? Yeah, they'd have. They, they would be to go get outside help as an admission that you don't know everything. You don't know something, right? You know now who doesn't get outside help? Right. Who does their own taxes? Yeah. You know, who does their own goddamn taxes? But you, but but no, you can't. You can't just say this is not. I coach football. I don't coach strength. Let's ask somebody that's a strength coach. That means it's an actual strength coach. Right. Not just the 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 lineman coach that you told to be the strength coach this semester. You know, they, they won't do it. I don't understand it. No, and they'll you know they they will work on. They understand when it comes to the sport. They they often have an, an understanding and a sense of the importance of fundamentals. As it, I mean, they'll work on basic blocking technique basically at every practice for the entire year. I mean, yeah. the basic, basic rudimentary fundamentals of the sport. But when it comes time to do something that is, you know, arguably just as complicated, you know, teaching a kid a correct squat, there's no, there's no attention paid to just rudimentary basic fundamentals. Um, you know, it's just put the bar on your back and squat, you know, more or less when it, you, you know, and they're yelling at a kid to go deeper when they don't necessarily understand that the kid, the way that he's got himself positioned under the bar, he literally can't go deeper. He can't go deeper. And they, and you then, know? and then they don't know how to fix that. That's exactly, that's what I mean. And yeah. so they, that, but they, they understand when it comes to other things that there's, that there's an, that there's an importance to 
getting the nuances correct in blocking technique or tackling technique or all those very little basic fun or ball carrying, you know, the most basic of basic skills for a, for a football player, but they will not apply that same thought process to something that's arguably just as complicated. Right. Which they don't understand that it's just as complicated. Hey, right. We lift weights. Yeah. Let's make this motion in the air, you know, you know, we lift weights. Maybe maybe it's because the kid's got the bar on his neck and his feet are six inches apart, pointed straight ahead, which is why he can't go any deeper. Yeah. You know, maybe, move, maybe the, move the bar you know, down maybe, two inches. Maybe learn how the hips work. Right. Right. Uh, but no, 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 they can't be bothered with that. They're, uh, I don't know, man. Uh, I quit. I used to be terribly worried about this, but I just quit worrying about it a while back. And uh, I don't care. I don't really. I mean, the only I time really I talk care. about it is in, a, is in a venue like this. Where yeah, I mean, where you blow off steam and stuff. But it's just yeah. a matter of, I mean, these people, they're, uh, oh, Andy, I think it has to be said, these people are not very bright. You know, They're, they're really know. not very bright. And uh, that doesn't excuse their behavior. Right. You know, uh when when a surgeon gets in over his head, he asks for help, right? Because the patient's life is on the line. But uh, you know these these high school level, uh, college level football coaches won't ever you know they 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 think that if they ask for help, they're going to be perceived as not knowing something. You know, which is apparently unusual. <laughs> right. And it's a, it's a, or it's something a, they don't know. <laughs> there's something fundamental in the psychology about it too. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm pretty bad on. I mean, I probably do this to a fault when when a client of mine or a lifter of mine is not performing at the level that I think that they could or that they should. You know, I put the onus on myself as the coach. You know, I I mean a lot, and that's not always fair because sometimes the you know the lifters get in their own way, but. You know, when you've got a kid that's not performing up to the level that he should be, you know, the, a good coach should look at what can what can I do better? You know, what can I do to get this kid up to his level of potential or get him better? And I think that's that's what's missing there. But I think, you know, good coaches, good, good trainers that work with people when we're when we don't have our lifters and our clients performing at the level that they should, you know, you, I often find myself looking inwardly you know, at myself of how can I communicate better or am I holding this person to a high enough standard or, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, that sort of thing. What am I, what am I not doing? Um, you know, and that's, that's how you get to be a better, that's how you get to be a better coach and you get, then you get the most out of the person that you can get based, you know, people to a degree will only get as good as you'll let them, you know, they won't always let, let you develop them, you know, all the way up to their potential, but it's, um, you you can't put the onus on the athlete, which is what I what I often see at that level is is what's happening. You know they're they're failing the kids and placing the onus and the blame on the kids. And right. the kids are showing up and the, putting in the work. The kids don't have the authority to be blamed. Right. They're not in charge. Exactly. The coaches are in charge, and right. if they're if the coaches are fucking this up, it's not the kids' fault. Right. But almost universally, you will see these people blame the kids. Yeah. And that's a that's just a that's a character flaw that a lot of these people have. Yeah. Not all of them are that way, but a lot of them are. That's a that's a severe character flaw. It really is. 
you know, the last time most of these most of these football associated strength coaches quote unquote learned anything was a long time ago. Right. You know. And I you know, I just I think it's unfair. And the kids are the ones that suffer. Yeah. Kids are the ones that come out of this on the short end of the stick because of the uh you know, because of the egos of these people. It's uh it's a damn shame. It really is. Yeah, it is. Because they're showing up, they're showing up and put, they're showing up and putting in the work, and you know they're going to do what they're told to do. And if they're told to do it wrong, they're going to do it wrong. If they're told to do it right, they're going to do it right. In right. most instances. Yeah, they're, you know? I mean, their their job is to do what they're told. Yeah. And they will pretty much. Now, some of them are smart enough to understand the problem. Right. You know, you and I deal with kids like that. You know. These, these guys at school told me to do this, and it just doesn't seem right. And we say, well, the reason it doesn't seem right is because it's wrong. Right. And, and here's the right way to do it. But don't go back to school and do it the right way in front of them because they're going <laughs> to take offense. Do it the wrong right. way with light weights. Yeah. <laughs> you have to learn how to sandbag. If you're going to be I, told to do the wrong thing. I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with kids that want to, you know, their parents bring them in over the summer and you got to have a conversation with them, you know, say, look, you're going to be going to this strength and conditioning camp or whatever, which, you know, as we all know is bullshit. They know it's bullshit. The parents know it's bullshit, but they got to do it if they want to play. Right. And that, that's one of the questions I asked them. I said, how close are you being monitored as to what, how much weight you're using and that sort of thing? You got 80 kids in the weight room. How close is that coach watching what you're actually putting on the bar, you know, and if you're a 315 squatter, can you get away with putting on 135 on the bar and just going Doing through the it most? wrong it's, for them? Could you, because you can probably <laughs> recover from that and then come in here this afternoon with me and we'll do it right, right, you know, and get you stronger. But if you're going, even if you're doing it wrong, you know, and these kids are going 100% in the weight room with these coaches, it's just, it's still, you know, even it's a bad a stress squat they have to recover from. Exactly. And it, you know, it makes our, our type of programming with any sort of, you know, linear progressive type approach is just not going to work because you no. have to be able to recover from the workouts. Right. And it's just, you know, they're, they're not in a position where they can do that. And we all know they're, the kids are not they're you know, they're never going to eat the way that they're supposed to, they don't get enough sleep, you know, so you have, that's built in, you know, mm -hmm. for the most part, you know, so if they're compounding these multiple stresses on, on top of the, their training, it's not going to work. So you got to have, you got to somewhat have them on board with that. The reason, in fact, the reason these high school coaches get away with this shit is because a 16-year-old kid can recover from being dropped off of a building. Yeah. You know, they can recover from anything. But once you're 65, things are different. The, 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 the primary difference between a kid that can do anything and an old person that can't do much at all is their ability to recover from the stress. And, uh, you know, old guys like me being 65, Andy doesn't know this yet, but well, he knows it theoretically, but I know it personally. It's just a, it's a tough deal. Looking back on 45 years of training, I can't do what I used to be able to do. And I can't even attempt to do it or I'll hurt myself again. And it's frustrating. It's terribly frustrating. 
my knee's a giant wreck right now. Not from what I did in the gym, but an accident I had out of my house. And uh, just not much, you know, you run up against a wall, uh, and that wall is age. The wall is age. What can you recover from, and how fast can you recover from it? And it changes the way you train people. Uh, older people have to have to be trained far more conservatively, while at the same time being stressed enough to produce an adaptation. Uh, it, it's you know you go from a three day or a four day a week workout to a two day a week workout when it gets to the point where it's just too hard to recover. And uh, Andy strained a bunch of old people. And, uh, you know, you, you can't take the same approach with them that you can these 16-year-old kids we've been talking about for far too long here. No. And that's, you know, it's, it's not, like I said, the, the, the movements change. The programming also changes, you know. And that's where I, you know, I kind of discovered, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't, for, I formulated my thoughts on programming for older people based on training a lot of older people and watching how they responded or didn't respond to different types of training programs and training stresses. And you train enough people, you start to see patterns emerge, mm -hmm. you know, and that's where, you know, the, the thought of you know, training volume versus training intensity, they are both a source of stress that can be used productively to generate performance increases. However, like you said, for an older person to recover from a lot of volume, what I discovered was that when you loaded people up with volume, was that the amount of, the intensity had to be reduced for them to such a level to, re to recover from a high amount of volume that it was no longer a strength a, adaptation. A, it was no longer exactly. It was, you were into training for work capacity versus right. force production right? and force production and work capacity are not the same thing. And when you have to, when you want to load up a, an older client with a whole bunch of volume and you have to reduce the intensity to, to too low of a degree for them to be able to handle that volume now you're just doing a bunch of volume and you're not really training force production. Right. And this misguided notion that, well, you know, the primary driver for muscle hypertrophy, which we, if we say the muscle hypertrophy is, you know, at, at the core of strength adaptation, the argument that these people will make is that, well, you need to focus on volume because that drives adaptations and muscle hypertrophy. And I just, I have a fundamental disagreement with that. I, I, I honestly think that I, the, I, that's the primary, just bullshit as far as I'm the, concerned. The primary driver for hypertrophy is not training volume. It is lifting progressively heavier weights and yeah. feeding the body with enough protein and calories right. to grow bigger and stronger. Now, right. how much volume you actually use or what rep ranges you actually use, there's a, it can vary quite a bit, but without the progressive overload and without the nutrients, the protein and the calories being provided in the windows between training sessions. That is the one thing that can't go away. The, 
the the primary point that you're making here is that the overload must be progressive. If you're doing eight sets of eight, and the weights never go up, the weights never get heavier, and you go a year without making any PRs in your sets of five, your sets of three, or your singles, then, you know, what have you done with your year? You know, I, I don't know. I, I see this all the time. And, yeah, it's a lot more fun to do weights you know that are going to be easy to do. You just, you know, reduce your rest and get in there and flail around and do them. But that's not that, – look, fives for PRs are what drives progress. Yeah. That's just all there is to it. Fives for PR weights drives progress. And they don't have to be big PRs. Might be a two-pound PR. But fives for PRs are the fundamental tools of strength and conditioning. And everything else is for the pump, I guess. You know, well, I, I just, uh, this is, this has been a, a, a problem that we have dealt with for a long time. For, lots and lots for the of guys people. that are, for the guys that are primarily interested in muscle hypertrophy, size, mm-hmm. mass, whatever you want to call it. I tell them all the time, look, if, if a year from now, if you're five rep squat or even for this, for to eight rep squat, three rep squat, name a rep range. Mm-hmm. If that has not gone up in a year from now, you will not be bigger. That's it. No, you're not to going to, you're, I don't to care it. how much, I don't care how much volume you use. I don't care what your training split is. I don't care how many days a week you do it. If your ability to squat, 315 for a set of five a year from now it's still 315 for five you're not going to be bigger if the numbers have to go up the numbers have to go up they have to go up and And, now and the funny thing about that is is you don't have the whole rest of your life to make those numbers go up now do you right so you better get busy making them go up a man with a 750 squat is bigger than a man with a 450 squat. Yeah. All there is to it. You know, all there is to it. Now you can get there. Some guys get there. They drive that progress up on the bar with very low volume programs. Some do it with medium volume. Some do it with higher volume. It doesn't, I don't really give a shit. Uh, I'm not necessarily beholden to any one approach but the the moral of the story is you need to find that optimal frequency volume intensity whatever to be able to put more weight on the bar in order if you, if your primary interest is whether it's well if it's if it's hypertrophy is what we're talking about the the that is not a separate thing from look there's there's there are legions of guys out there who are dying to put on muscle size and mass Okay, if it was as easy as just overloading yourself with volume at whatever weight, then that's what everybody would be huge, wouldn't they? You could squat, you could just bench four times a week for five sets of six or whatever you wanted to do with whatever weight you could handle on that particular day and you would be huge. But it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't. And anybody that has been doing this any length of time has seen with their own eyes that it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You have to get stronger. 
which means you have to lift heavier weights in order to get bigger because bigger is stronger. You can't get stronger without growing the cross-sectional area of the muscle bellies involved in the movement pattern. Sorry, you, you can't, you know. And if you want to get bigger, you have to lift heavier weights than you're lifting right now. Now, this used to be recognized 60 years ago. Everybody understood this, didn't they? But yeah. now we're all scientific and all this other bullshit. And, and well, uh, even even there, you're starting to see some backtracking on that. You're uh-huh. starting to I've I've seen it a bunch of times where you're starting to see people say, "Well, you know, maybe maybe we got a little too heavy into the into the volume camp, and maybe maybe pushing our sets a little closer to failure matters. Maybe maybe making sure that we're increasing the load on the bar, you know, at least periodically. Maybe that matters a little more than we <laughs> thought it did. Well, yeah, no shit, no shit, you know, and the. The way that you do that, I mean, I tell people that how, how do you know when to go up and all, you know, I'd say you take the two and a half pound weights, you put them on the side of the bar and you try to lift the fucking thing. Yeah. That's it. That's all. You know, and, you, and you put, and you put a hell of a lot of effort into it. It's, it's really not any more complicated yeah. than that, but complexity sells, doesn't it? Yeah. Complexity sells. It's not just complexity though. It's, it's a redefinition of what success of programming is. And I've, I've had this conversation with new incoming clients that have tried other approaches where they have almost gone. It's, it's almost a, it's an offshoot of our, of our culture in a way where they've redefined the success of a program as just simply not failing your work sets. Right. Even though they're the same weight you did last week. Right. So, (laughs) you know, if that's, I mean, that's fine. If that's, if, if you're as strong as you want to be and as big as you want to be, um, but, and you know, it's not failing work sets all the time is not necessarily something that we even advocate. Well, um, no, no, we but, don't want you to fail a work set. We want you right. to select the load accurately. Right. I mean, I, I very rarely have, you know, clients that are consistently failing work sets. And if, if they are, there's a problem with the programming or the problem with the recovery in between mm-hmm. sessions or, or whatever. But that, that is, you know, that is kind of our approach has been straw manned into that of, you know, if you're not if you're not setting the bar on the pins at every workout, you're somehow not not doing our program. And that just, you know, in practice, that's that's just not you know, that's just not how I run my programming with no. my athletes, you know, no, because it doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work. It beats you up too bad. You get overtrained. And now we're really in trouble. Right. You know, and that's the thing with, you know, that's the thing with older people, you know, going back to that is. You know, if you look at the programming that we put in the in the barbell prescription is that, you know, the it's it is it is a very you know, we I started with a with a very low volume approach there because it is less of a sin to underdo it a little bit at the beginning and then add the work a little bit as needed yeah. when somebody is not progressing because they're not being adequately stressed. It's not that hard to add a set here, right. add an extra day here you know, whatever it is that you need to do, there's lots of different ways to add stress to the program, but that's a lot less of a sin than it is to start with a radically high training volume, get the older client completely overtrained and then try to pull back on that because it takes a long time to undo that. You know, we're concerned with the trajectory, right? We have to be concerned with the trajectory. If you, you could start off too light and you know, Waste some time, sure. 
But that's better than starting off too heavy and taking too big a jumps and getting stuck. And and worse than that, getting injured. Yeah. You know, the the upward trajectory is what strength training is all about. Right. And uh, and you, you have to understand that as you age, <laughs> as you age, the uh, – the trajectory still must go up, but it, the, the slope of the line is going to change. It's going to be a more shallow trajectory as you age. Uh, you start off a 60-year-old client. He's not going to show you the same trajectory as a 17-year-old kid. And, but that does not mean that the trajectory is, is not – necessarily a positive number your job training older people is to make them stronger they have to go up in weight their body weight needs to go up the weights on the bar have to go up but there's there are subtle nuances that you have to understand if you're going to train older people but by the same token the 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 trajectory must be upward you have to have uh an, an increasing amount of weight being lifted all the time, or what the hell are we doing this for? Right. You know, and, you know, experienced uh, trainers such as Andy and myself understand that we're we're going, we, we have to add more weight to the bar as often as we can. How much do we add to the bar? Well, now there's another question entirely. And say the the minimal amount that may, drives any sort of meaningful right. progress, right. you know, whatever whatever constitutes and you know a new overload for that person that they can recover from, you know, right. if they've never if they're at one fifty five, yeah, maybe they could squat one seventy five the next workout. But, but if they've never why would they want to? How yeah, productive never, would it be to have them do that? And if the, they've never the squatted 160 before, then squatting 160 for a set of five or three sets of five is going to constitute an event that causes an adaptation without the accompanying fatigue that would that would be there if you took them up to whatever their maximum ability is for that day. Right. You know, it's only got to be a little bit more. Than, and the same thing applies with with volume. You know, you don't need to start them with the max amount of volume that they can recover from. You need enough volume to drive an adaptation and then you add it as needed. And it's far easier to do that. You know, when a person is not training with enough volume or not, not enough training stress, you what you will, and this is in both of the books is that what you will typically see is they will just, they'll kind of stagnate, you know, but they don't have the effects of overtraining. They don't have massive regression. They don't necessarily, they don't wind up with all the aches and pains and all that shit. And so it's, it's an easy fix. You add a back offset, you add maybe a light day or, or whatever that you do to, to get them training with enough stress to get them moving again. But when you start them off with way too much, when you have when you get that older client overtrained oh, and, and, you right. know, ask, ask, ask me how I know yeah. is that it's it's a mess. To, and the thing is, is that when you when you have someone understimulated and you increase the stimulus, you increase the stress. The, the benefits to that start to manifest themselves almost immediately, right away. They start to show new improvement. When you overtrain somebody and you pull back on the volume or the intensity to get them recovered again, the, the benefits of that do not immediately manifest themselves. No. It takes a while. The inflammation is there. 
right. you know. Yeah, the, you've the still screwed them up. It takes a while to undo that. You've still screwed mess. them up. You really have. You know, you right. you cannot overface uh, an older trainee, or you're going right. to lose them as a client. Right. But more importantly than that, you you cannot overface an older trainee because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The recovery. Ability to recover from stupidity gets way, way worse as you get older. Yep. You know. And then to compound it, and this is where the the intensity dependence part comes in. So you take them, you go light for a few weeks or they take a week off or whatever. Old people detrain really fast. Mm-hmm. They detrain fast. So now not only not only have you overtrained them, but you forced them into a position where they're going to take a while to recover from that overtraining. And at the same time, they're just getting progressively weaker right. from not being stimulated. In so other now words, they're, they're not making any progress when you do that. And then you come to the, the, the point where they have to write you another check this month. Right. And they say, wow, and well, saying, my back you know, hurts. I don't seem to be getting any, anything out of this, yeah. you know, except I hurt all the time. Yeah. You know, eh, maybe I'll do, maybe I'll do something else. Yeah. And, it's you know, it's, it's a logical decision, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It really is. That's why the theory, I've always said that the theory of all this stuff cannot be divorced from the practical, whether you want to call it the business of training or whatever, it cannot be divorced from, because if you don't have clients in front of you, you're not able to put all your shit that you think, you know, in your head into practice. Right. <laughs> so you right. can't divorce all this theory and shit from actually working with clients in a commercial setting, you know, and that's, uh, so it's not you, you, and you only learn from making these mistakes with people and having them not want to cut you the check, you know, the next week, you know, right. when, when they're, when they're due. And so you've got to, you've got to find them a way, you've got to find a way to train them to get them progressively better and stronger to where they feel the benefits of that in their real life. And their whole job is not just recovering from the training sessions. Well, you are going to make these mistakes. If you're a new trainer, you're going to learn all the stuff that we're, we're telling you, we've learned it the hard way, just like you will. But a smart person will listen to what we're trying to tell you. Um, old people, older people, older trainees, masters, lifters, whatever you want to call them are a uh, are in a very important part of most uh, of our businesses. They have the means to pay us and they benefit far more from a strength and conditioning program than does an 18 year old kid who's already strong because he hadn't been alive but 18 years right So this this master's thing, Training older people is, is a, I mean, if you're going to be in the strength and conditioning business, you're going to have to learn how to do it. Right. And, uh, the book is a good place to start. You know, uh, the barbell prescription strength training for life over 40 and, uh, co-author of that book is, is with us today. Andy Baker. And uh, I've known Andy several years now, and Andy's got his head out of his ass, and uh, in a way that most people don't. And 
Um, I'm, I'm pleased to be associated with him. Uh, Andy, thanks for coming on the, on the show today. And, uh, thanks for sharing this. Where can you be gotten a hold of? Oh, best place to go is just go to my website, andybaker.com. And you can, you can find all my online stuff plus my gym right. stuff there. Right. Andybaker.com. Look him up, ask him to help you. He's, he's good at this. Uh, Andy, thanks for being with us today. Sure do appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you guys next week right here. Starting strength. Radio.